this is Fintech Unplugged with Suresh Vajani and me, Robert Cornish. It's myself and Suresh Vajani, and today on our live Fintech Unplugged podcast, we have the inimitable Mr. David Birch. Thank you very much, Robert. Happy to be here. So, we have Dave Birch. Now, we are going to ask questions to Dave that people never ask him. So, Robert, yeah. I think you should go first. Oh, I'm going to go first. Are you going to tell people they can put questions in the bin? No, the bin of confusion is here, yeah, yeah, by the yeah. way, everybody. Uh, so, if you've listened to the podcast, this is the bin of confusion, into which we have questions that people have uh, submitted during the last day and a half here at Pay Expo. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to reach in and see, see what we've got in here. David, first question. Okay, so what is the longest sentence you can say using as many fintech acronyms what? as possible? That is a real question from the audience. How many fintech acronyms can you get into one sentence? <laughs> okay, on the MPSA, using the FPS 222 XML SCT... Will the PSD2 XS2A, SCA, AISP or PISP, are you with me so far? I'm totally with you. Okay. Will that allow the ASPSP to instruct the PSP to do the 2FA, or will the ASPSP retain... Li it's a legal question. Of course, I know. Will the ASPSP retain liability through the PISP when they instruct the transfer. And I think that all depends on the time. They always say it depends. What's the point of asking lawyers any of these questions? He always <laughs> says it's depend. it we depends. Can't, we haven't got enough money in the budget for that answer, okay. Suresh. Suresh. Move on to go. the next one. Robert has only one terminology he understands, ASS. <laughs> Dave. Advanced systems systems. We've all heard about cryptocurrencies, right? Everyone's been talking about it for ages. This is the revolution. This is going to end all the problems in the payment space. Is it just a fad? What's the real deal? What's the, you know, without somebody trying to sell their wares about crypto, what's the real deal with crypto? Well, um, I think generally speaking that the cryptocurrencies have been overhyped, but the systems that have been going to be built on top of them, particularly uh, security, utility, and payment tokens have been underhyped. So the primary use of the cryptocurrencies will be to power the crypto asset trading that sits on top of them, rather than as mechanisms for exchange themselves. So personally, I'm unconvinced about cryptocurrencies as currencies, but as mechanisms for powering crypto asset trading, I think it's quite probable. And, and you saw the first uh, Swiss uh, crypto asset trading uh, company has been uh, registered now. Yeah, so, so quite a few people are looking at Switzerland as the sort of template for the legal structures that could grow up around that. And the FINMA regulate well, they're, they're proposed regulations at the moment. They're not, they're not actual regulations yet, are they? Which, but, yeah, which... No, the first one got signed to this morning oh, under oh. the regulations. Oh, okay. uh, it was in uh, Cointelegraph. So that's a good template. So cryptocurrencies, unless you're particularly interested in uh, prostitution or pornography or drug dealing. So um, I don't really, <laughs> I don't see much utility. Whereas cryptocurrencies to power crypto asset trading, serious business. So enough of Robert's uh, itemized statement. Uh, there are hobby right? uses of it. I agree. But 
why do the banks hate crypto? Why the do banks the regulators don't hate crypto? I don't think the banks do hate crypto. So banks are very unsentimental people. If Bitcoin was actually quicker and cheaper than using FPS or something else, banks would use it. They don't care. They're, they're not emotional about these kind of things. If it was quicker and cheaper, they'd use it. It's not quicker and it's not cheaper. The only advantage of using something like Bitcoin, by the way, this isn't true, but we need to tell everybody this, is that it's anonymous. It's not really. You can trace all of the transactions. What we need to do is we need to persuade more criminals to start using Bitcoin because that would drive up the usage, but it would also make them easier to catch. Exactly. And so that's what I would call a win-win situation. And the schemes? What about the schemes? Do they love crypto? MasterCard, Visa, do they, they love don't, crypto? They don't love or hate. They're not emotional people. If cryptocurrency was useful, they'd use it. It isn't, so they don't. No one's going to base a multi-million dollar payment processing network on something that can be brought down because someone's playing crypto kitties first thing in the morning. It's just not going to happen. Oh, sorry. I, yeah. It's okay. We'll, we'll you can do that, that in out. the podcast. Yeah, yeah, it'll be sorted out by Jeff later. Don't worry. Now, actually, Dave, challenger banks, right? Are they really, I mean, you know, are they the future? Everyone seems to be a challenger bank. There's the ones that really have the licenses to be a challenger bank. There's ones that are prepaid cards pretending to be a challenger bank. And then there's every technology payments company saying, we're a challenger bank. What's the deal? Is it hype? Are challenger banks the future? What's going on? Uh, I don't think that challenger banks are really... Ch challenger bank is the wrong name for these kind of things. What they really are... Well, the ones that are actually banks, as we discovered yesterday, half of them aren't. But the ones that are actually banks, they're not challengers. They're niche banks. So the way to think about it... If you're the guy that's running Barclays, I, I can't think of his name, but whoever the guy that's running Barclays is, are you laying awake at night worrying about Monzo? I mean, you're not. You're laying awake at night worrying about Amazon and, and people like that. It's like if, if, you know, if Monzo got to any reasonable scale, one of the incumbents would just buy it anyway and use it as their digital brand. So I think challenges is the wrong word for them. I, I think they're niche banks, not challenger banks. Uh, and someone like Ant Bank, is but that I'm a challenger bank? But I'm open to challenge on that. What? Dave, Ant Bank, is that a challenger bank? Uh, not to us, unless it gets a PSD2 license. But uh, I'm not saying some of these aren't big companies, but the people that we refer to as challenger banks are really niche banks, to be honest, right? If you look at like the top 10 most used mobile bank applications, as of now in the UK, it's still Barclays, RBS, Nationwide, and so on and so forth. Lots of people might have secondary accounts they use for mucking around with or foreign currency, but I don't think they're really challengers yet. But what is the definition of a challenger bank? The reason I say this, right, is it seems like these traditional banks are saying, you know what, we're going to launch a new challenger bank. We're going to have no branches. And it's almost like that's the remit. Could I not say... First Direct was the first challenger bank. No, no, you know? I, I think that's a perfectly reasonable point. But to be a challenger bank, you've got to be able to challenge to take scale away from the incumbents, and, and that's not really clear to me at all. And you just know, after, after, after all these years of, of you know, the government having you know, competition policy and CMA and all that sort of thing, the top four banks still have, you know, whatever it is, I can't remember, 80% of the business or 90% of the business or something. So they're not really challengers, I don't think. And, and, and just what is your take on the traditional banks? You know, RBS has said they're going to launch their challenger bank called BO. BO, right? Is it, it BO? It's called Banky McBankface. If you, well, if you go by the public vote, I did oh. see your which is always that, a bad idea, by the way. 
So will they will they succeed? They they they're launching their challenger bank, which will have no branches. Look, I think a lot of those opportunities to have new banks, niche banks, those are all good opportunities, and they all have their own niches. Whether they will ever reach the scale of the incumbents is really not clear at this time. Remember, there are other people who have as many customers, which when you start moving into the PSD2 space, egged on by people like Robert, what's, what's the cost of applying for a PI license in, in Europe right now? The cost of the license or getting someone to draft it, it for you? Not, not, not including your costs, obviously. Okay. but Probably a, a few grand. It's not yeah, very it's expensive. a few grand. So anybody that's got millions of customers, whether it's Amazon or Tesco or, or Southwest Trains or the Metropolitan, whatever, I mean, any of these people, for the sake of a few grand, can get a PSD2 license. They've already got the customers. They've already got the traction. So competing with them is going to be pretty difficult, in my opinion. I agree. But I think this is a very interesting question, which I'm sure you can put some insight on, David. Can somebody please give me some insights to what Brexit will mean for fintech in the UK? God. The minister for something or other, king around with fintech, I've forgotten his name. He was in the newspaper saying what a fantastic success fintech had been for the UK. But if you look at the thousands of companies that are registered with the FCA, a lot of those have come from all over Europe because the FCA is a better and more efficient regulator and has more experience and more expertise in those registrations and licenses. I'm not sure what it means for us in particular. You do see people complaining all the time right now that they can't get the trained staff they need and so on. So my prediction is, well, I have two predictions around this. Again, I stand by these. You can come back and ask me about this in the future. I have two predictions. First of all, London uh, needs to get out of the UK as soon as possible. The, the, the London, see, we call it the UK experiment. We don't call it the UK. So in London, the UK experiment has worked well for us. In Napoleonic times, it was a useful bastion against continental dictatorship. But there's no obvious reason for London to remain in the UK for much longer. And there are considerable benefits to monetary policy by getting London out of the sterling zone because London distorts the monetary base. The interest rates that are applicable in London are certainly not applicable in other parts of the country. So, you've already seen the Mayor of London asking for London to have its own visas. It's a pretty small step from having your own visas to having your own money. So the first thing is, we have to get out of the UK uh, as an independent city-state. That's an obvious thing to do. But there are some problems downstream. Because um, in Wessex, we've already started the Wexit movement. Because we want, well, the England experiment, we gave it a thousand years. It hasn't really worked for us. The time is, it's, it's time to restore Winchester as our capital and see the dragon banner once again fluttering over the town square. So London out of the UK, Wessex out of England. Other than that, I don't see much change. So on, on that note, what about passporting? Because, you know... What's blue. going to really happen? They're going to be blue. Don't you read the papers, Suresh? <laughs> We're going to have passporting, but it's going to be blue passporting. And it'll be much better than the red passporting because I can't... It's someone blue. help me out. I can't think of any reason why it's going to be better. And for but... fintech? Passporting? Uh, for fintech, in the passporting will undoubtedly continue, right? There's Until no... 2020? Even across hard borders. Even across hard borders. Because there's too much money at stake. Right? So if we really were to have a hard fintech border, everybody would be worse off. So if I was an e-money issuer, should I be trembling in my shoes 
Based in the UK or not? No, no, you shouldn't. Uh, remember, you've got one, one huge there. advantage, which is London is the home of world money laundering. So the need for financial services in London is going to continue well past Brexit. Suresh. Don't worry about Come it. Come on, Don't Suresh. Worry about it. So, Dave, what, what is your wish list for PSD3? Uh, PSD3. Assuming we're still in the EU and can use it. <laughs> That's a funny question. Okay, what should we have in PSD3? So if the UK is going to have its own PSD3, the first things we should do is we should remove the ban on, car, on payment surcharging. That was, that was one of Mrs. May's stupidest uh, decisions, which is up against some pretty stiff competition, by the way, I have to say. But it was particularly stupid to impose the ban on surcharging because this means... Rich people like me who are messing around buying British Airways tickets with Amex Platinum cards don't have to pay a surcharge anymore, which is great. So we get more air miles. Thank you very much, Mrs. May. And people who are less well off and have to pay with debit cards now are paying more for their tickets. Now, why this is government policy, I don't really understand. I mean, somebody can probably explain it to me. So step one is to get rid of the ban on surcharging. We want surcharging as soon as possible. You should be able to surcharge for everything except debit cards. Secondly, we want reciprocity in the APIs that are being opened up by the CMA. So right now, we have an unfair playing field, whatever was said yesterday. Because right now, anybody that wants to can come to me, right? Amazon can come to me and say, hey, Dave, next time you order something from Amazon, instead of bothering those nice people at Visa and MasterCard, because they're very busy with all those transactions, why don't you just let us take the money out of your bank account? And by the way, if you do that, you get an extra month of Prime and whatever. And so, of course, I'll say yes, as will most other people. So fairly quickly, the internet giants will get access to everybody's bank account data. But the banks don't get reciprocal access to the internet giants' data. Amazon get access to the bank data, but the bank doesn't get access to the Amazon data. That lack of reciprocity effectively hands the financial services market over to the internet giants. And in the post-Brexit, hyper-competitive, restored capitalism of Brexit, we're going to restore real competition. So we're going to introduce API reciprocity. So my three, my two key, pol no, my three key policies are surcharging, API reciprocity. No, that's it. I've only got two. There you go. David, la last year, <clears throat> Suresh here was payments power 10 number one. This year, he got pushed into number two by Anne Bowden. What are your predictions? I have absolutely no faith year? in the democratic process <laughs> because it's fundamentally inimical. So the point is you can't have democracy and social media. You can have one or the other. In the old days, when we had an informed electorate that were making these decisions, the power 10, it meant something. But this year, it's manipulated. It's, it's all done through Facebook targeting and groups. What did and, you and come, manipulating Dave? What, what number did you come? people into making their voting decisions <laughs> for them. It doesn't mean anything. You can't have democracy and social media. One of them's got to go. So you're saying Suresh shouldn't have been number two this year? No, he should have been number 22 at maximum. <laughs> How this was rigged, I don't know, but it was fantastic. Well done. Uh, I have to hand it to you. Dave, Dave, I've got a question for you, right? Yeah, the Americans. So, you know what? Generally, when it comes to technology, the Americans, historically, you know, Silicon Valley, they run the show, right? Historically, in, in all these things. When it comes to payments, 
London, Europe has been the capital of innovation in payments. Why do you think the Americans have kind of lagged behind? And I've seen some of the innovations that they were building a few years back when they were saying, I press this button and I can change the mag stripe. And they were seeing that as innovation. So why do you think that the Brits, the Europeans are running the show when it comes to payments compared to the Americans, when they almost in every other department, they run the show, Silicon Valley, all of that? So um, because I'm quite a boring person, I know the figures off by heart. So in the US, the payment system takes about 1% of GDP. It's peculiarly inefficient. So in Europe, for example, in Finland, which has the most efficient payment system, payments are about 0.15% of GDP. So why, does it, why do payments take up six times as much as a fraction of GDP in the US? Well, one answer is because people are still writing checks, obviously, that's part of it. But to be completely honest, and without offending anybody that's present, it's partly to do with competition. So the oligarchy of large banks that control the US payment system, they don't have any other independent bodies to control it. The Federal Reserve has no mandate over the interbank payment system. So as a consequence, they're very happy with an inefficient system as it stands at the moment. And we would be the same if it hadn't been for various kinds of competition that have been introduced over the years. So the truth is, it's not because electrons run slower in the US to the best of my knowledge. And I did do physics at university, so you can count on that. It's not because the electrons run slower in the US, it's because of the lack of competition. The big banks are very happy with the system the way it is. So it's more about, it's a protection racket there. Well, uncharitable people, of which I'm not one by the way, would call it a protection racket, but for legal purposes, I want to make it really clear, it was Suresh that said that, and I am an innocent bystander in this part of the conversation. As my lawyer will confirm, uh, I did not incite him to say that. You certainly did. Have you got another one in the bucket? So, I actually, I've got a question for you. I've got a question, which is, I'm trying to work out where Robert spends most of his time in terms of countries. So, could you tell me where cash is used most predominantly and the reasons behind it? Where in Europe. Where cash is used most predominantly. So, in Europe, the highest use of cash as a proportion of retail sales in Western Europe, I think, is still Germany. Uh, Germany is very cash intensive. More than Italy. Yeah, well, it's because, uh, but the Germans are richer, so they spend more. So, um, and that's predominantly for tax evasion purposes, isn't it? I mean, isn't that why the Germans have lots of 500 euro notes stuffed under the bed? Um, so Germany is the highest use of cash, I think, in Western Europe. Uh, France has a less efficient payment sector than we do, which is great. Uh, that's largely because they still use checks a lot, which we don't. The most efficient payment sector in Europe, uh, Finland I've already mentioned. In terms of retail payments, my favorite country is probably Iceland. Have you been to Iceland recently? Not recently. Oh, well, Iceland's my favorite country for two reasons. So one is they have the lowest use of cash at retail point of sale. 97% of all retail transactions in Iceland are by card. The only people that use cash are tourists when they're there. And also, they locked up all the bankers in 2008, which was, no, they did. They're not like here, just walking around with these huge pensions. In Iceland, they actually put them in jail. And the, the Icelandic recovery from the crash has been fantastic. It's an absolute case study. So Iceland's fantastic. Sweden, of course, were only 13% of retail. Now, you see, you're looking at me like I'm just making these numbers up. I would never do that. When I stand up here and say, in Sweden, 13% of retail transactions are in cash, you can 
you can bet the shop on it. I know those figures. In Sweden, it's only 13%. Why is it only 13% in Sweden while we're still using like 28%? Because in Sweden, the anti-cash movement is led by Bjorn from ABBA. Isn't that fantastic? It, it was a pop group. Oh, oh, right. Okay, good. You are actually... So I'm not making that up. Tell that later. I'm not making... Is it Bjorn from ABBA is leading the anti-cash movement? So if we want to make a difference in the UK... No, I'm not... She's Swedish. She'll tell you it's true. It's, it's Bjorn from ABBA, right? So uh, if, we wanted, if we wanted to make a difference <laughs> to the use of cash here, we would have to get somebody who was as good as Paul that. Paul McCartney. No, somebody who was as good a pop star to lead our anti-cash movement. That sounds like match-fixing if ever I heard it. So oh, basically, totally. that means... G give me the name of a modern pop star that I can use for that. David Hasselhoff. Ed Sheeran. Okay. So basically, we have to get Ed Sheeran to be against cash, and then it'll all be okay. Only Suresh could come up with David Hasselhoff as a top modern singer. Anyway, but uh, we've got a real Sweden, question. It's because the labor unions as well, right? So one of the differences in Sweden was the Swedish anti-cash alliance includes the, the labor unions as well as the employers because their problem was when people get robbed in shops, it's their union members who are the people who are being stabbed and robbed in the small shops that still use cash. So one of the other lessons from Sweden is that it was a broad alliance against cash. It wasn't just the banks uh, and people like that. Okay, so that's so, enough of what yeah, Dave does yeah, on no, the weekend. Because he's from Swedbank. So I, <laughs> Swedbank. Yeah. So he knows that I'm telling the truth. Says what it does on the tin. Okay, it's, it's too easy for kids to buy things online, intentionally or by accident. Should we be more proactive in educating people on how to manage new payment methods? Mr. Birch. Uh, actually, I think, I mean, quite seriously, I think this is an area where the industry has done quite poorly so far. So when I was a kid... You used to have like play money. Remember when like you, you'd like have a little cash register and you had little play money in it and coins that you could pretend to spend. And, all. and so kind of you, you learned a little bit about money that way. But kids now, what is their vector for learning about money? I mean, how do kids now learn about money, right? Because they're just given cards when they're, I don't know, what, 12 or 13? I don't even know. Um, they're just given cards, and then they use those, to, and they have no real sense of the money that they're spending or what it's worth. So actually, as quite a serious, I know you didn't mean it, as a, but as quite a serious point, if the industry wanted to do something in that space, and I don't know the answer because I'm not an educator, but finding a way to educate kids about money and how you spend money and what it's worth and spending money online, that would actually be a good thing. I mean, for the Emerging Payments Association, I think that might be an interesting area to open up. But is this it's not a, it's more a about... It's a problem, right? But is this not really more about maybe the payments industry should be adapting to that generation? Because the children are the future. In the way that we have hang-ups... Are we going to sing a song? Yeah, I think uh, so. <laughs> in the way that we have hang-ups about certain obstacles and you know, user experience, these kids don't have these concerns. So should it not be we're adapting to them because that is where it's all going? What do, you, what do you mean by adapting to them? I mean, the point is they don't understand anything about money or payments because to them it's just this intangible thing. They might as well be playing Fortnite or World of Warcraft or something. So getting them to understand what the money really means is a difficult problem. 
And we had games and play to teach us those kind of things. And they Monopoly. don't have that now. So we need to find some alternative. And it's all very well to say, well, look, you take your Bitcoin wallet and you go to the drug dealer and you buy the spice and then you press. It's all very well to say that. But are they really learning from that? That's my point. I think we need to a bit. We need to work a bit harder than that, don't you think? Thank you. I'm loving you, you see, being down on the kids' lingo there, no, Dave. No, well, I'm just. I'm. I'm happening. What is spice? I'm down with the kids. This is what happens in Wessex. It's what happens in Wessex. What happens in going, Wessex stays in Wessex. Clearly. You'll go, Sir. You got one more out of the bin. I've got one more. Suresh. You still got two more minutes. We've still got two more minutes. Is open banking opening the doors to new opportunities for fraud? Fraud. Well, I hope so. Because I, I you know, <laughs> You've been no, missing well, that because I've been looking at a plan B, you know, the whole kind of consulting thing, it's okay. But the fraudsters are much more inventive. That's where the innovation is, in my opinion. Like some of them, you read it and it just takes your breath away, doesn't it? Like, how did they think of that? Okay, so when you get an email that purports to come from, uh, you know, John Lewis and co, Vladivostok branch, which asks for access to your bank account, uh, and you naturally say, okay, I don't think you can blame the banks for that sort of thing, can you? We can't offload. Like, when people get the letter that's supposed to come from their builder, and it says, oh, by the way, we've moved branches. We're not at the RBS in Hastings anymore. We're behind the hot water pipes at the third washroom along on Vienna main train station. Can you send the money there? And people do. Why is that the bank's fault? Every Saturday on Moneybox Live, they're moaning about the banks. Why is it our fault if people send money to these transparent fraudsters? So um, open banking is certainly a vector for fraud. Fortunately, many of the banks in the UK have made the right choice when it comes to consultants to advise them on how to construct a secure infrastructure which will prevent this kind of thing from happening. And of course, that depends on a thorough knowledge of the digital identity space as well as the payment space. Was that okay, Claire? All right, good. If flies and moths are attracted to light, why do they never fly into a fire? Because they're attracted by ultraviolet light, not infrared, which is emitted by a fire. Shit. You picked the wrong question to ask a physicist, Shit. Shiraj. I did tell you this. Shit. Thank you for listening, everybody. Thank you, Thank everybody. You Thanks and for the questions, guys. That was fun. This will be going know. out live on iTunes. Yep. We've got a lo on load on more FinTech Unplugged coming out next week. Please uh, log in, sign up, and uh, subscribe. subscribe. It's honestly a podcast like you've never heard before. I guarantee it. So thank, thank you. you. Thank you very much, David. <laughs>